sobering topic this morning. You know, in the year 1337, after complicated political relationships and rising tensions over territory, two kingdoms, England and France, entered into what we call today the Hundred Years' War. Throughout the 14th and 15th centuries, these kingdoms were almost at constant war, but for a few brief truces and two periods of peace. At the end of the Hundred Years' War, it is generally agreed that neither country achieved notable profit. History is wrought with kingdoms at war. Since Cain killed Abel, bloodshed has been a tragic part of humanity. Both deeds of heroism and deeds of villainy are found throughout the pages of history as nation has raged and continues to rage against nation. But the battles that we read about, the battles that we see on the news are only a dim glimpse of the real conflict that rages all around us. There is a climactic clash between two invisible kingdoms. Since the serpent deceived the woman into taking the forbidden fruit, the conflict between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God has raged always behind the scenes of human activity. But unlike the conflicts that we see among our fellow man, the outcome of these spiritual kingdoms is determined. One will stand. One will fall. This morning, we're going to look at the second of four events that take place after Jesus had been teaching on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, let me remind you, is Jesus' reign on earth. It's happening right now within the hearts of those who trust in Jesus, within the hearts of Christians. That's what it is. But what does it do? We saw this last week. We're going to continue to see this. The kingdom of God undoes evil. Last week, we saw Jesus' power to undo a storm. The kingdom of God reverses the curse of creation. This week, we'll see the kingdom of God compete against the kingdom of Satan. What's going to happen? The first thing I want you to see from our text this morning is this. Satan's kingdom is strong and holds people captive. Satan's kingdom is strong and holds people captive. I'm going to go back to verse 1 of chapter 5. Please follow along as I read. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day... Among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. 
So Jesus and his disciples have made it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're no longer in Israel. They've crossed a border. They're in the country of the Gerasenes. Now, the Gerasenes is the area opposite of Galilee on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is outside of Israel. He's in Gentile country. They do things differently over there. Now, keep in mind, these events that we're reading about today, they happened right after Jesus calmed a storm. Most likely, it's still night. Still the same night that he'd calmed the storm when he steps out of the boat onto the shores of the Gerasenes. Verse 2 tells us when he stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So picture the scene with me. Jesus steps out of the boat. Here comes this demon-possessed man. It's night. And just as in all other cases that we've seen up till now, demons cannot not reveal themselves to Jesus. They have to make themselves known. They can't hide when he is present. It's not possible. Here comes this man. And Mark gives us actually quite a bit of backstory here. We're told not only is he demon-possessed, but he lives among the tombs. That sounds kind of weird, but think about this. He was probably shunned by civilized people. He probably took shelter where he could, and tombs back then were either natural caves or they were cut out of limestone, so this would have provided adequate shelter. But there's also a bit of irony here, too, because it was a popular belief back in this time that tombs were favorite haunts for demons. The fact that this man lived in the tombs would have seemed perfectly natural to a common first century person. We're also told that this man could not be bound. We're actually told he could not be bound anymore which suggests that at a time he could be bound. But now he could not be bound, even with a chain. And the idea is that people had attempted to bring this man under control through barbaric means. They tied him and they'd even chained him to keep him under control. But at some point that stopped working because look at verse 4. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. That's supernatural strength. Now, I've known chains to fail. One time I worked at a a warehouse and one of the workers there was moving a big piece of steel with an overhead crane and a chain was attached to that piece of steel. One of the links failed, and the whole thing came crashing down. Fortunately, no one was hurt. But that chain was carrying well over a 1,000 pounds. Think about that. Now, I know that our chains that we make today are much greater quality than the chains back then, but still, no human being should have had the strength to snap these chains. This is incredible Hulk-like strength. We're also told about this man, no one had the strength to subdue him. Now that word for subdue there, that's the word for tame, like tame an animal. 
In other words, this man had been treated like an animal. He was ostracized. There had been attempts to tame him, attempts to chain him, but all those attempts attempts now failed. And what's the result? Look at uh, verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is a sad picture. This is not, you know, the awkward guy down the street who's just a little weird. This is terrifying. This is a man who has been driven mad by demon possession. He roams the tombs and the mountains and he's crying out in anguish. He's crying out in mental anguish. His pain is so severe that he is turned to cutting. And this is a practice that you know is not foreign to us today. Cutting is real. People still do it. Some of you may have experienced this with this perhaps in your past, possibly in your present. It's a sensitive topic and I don't want to cause anyone pain. But the truth is this, that people turn to cutting as a way to try to ease strong, painful emotions, sometimes brought on by the pressures from an outside world, brought on by damaging relationships, whatever the case may be, people get desperate because they feel rejected, they're sorrowful, they're empty, and they turn to drastic measures like cutting just to try to relieve themselves of some inner turmoil. I'm not saying that people who cut themselves are possessed like this man, but the idea is the same, that he is trying to relieve himself of some inner turmoil by turning to this practice. And that is what Satan's kingdom does. Satan's kingdom turns people back to an animalistic behavior, We learn later on that this man ran around with nothing on, crying, living in the tombs. Satan's kingdom does this. It creates animal where there should be human. It holds people captive. The manifestations of captivity are different. In the, in the ways that Satan holds people captive. Not everyone appears as severe as this man who's held captive by Satan. This is an extreme case. But make, make no mistake that those within Satan's kingdom are held captive all the same. The condition is the same, but the manifestation can be different. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you can follow along as I read And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was our condition. The condition is the same for all 
Everyone who has not come to Christ is spiritually dead. The condition is the same, but the manifestation is different. You know, you, the manifestations can be widely different. You can be without Christ, lost, dead in your sins, and generally be a good person. You can generally be a liked person. You can have good, upstanding morals. You can have morals that even agree with God's word, but still be lost, still be held captive by the kingdom of Satan. And on the other extreme, you can be lost, you can be dead in your sins, and be hard, and be cold, and be murderous. You could be counted among the worst of humanity. You could be another Hitler or another Stalin. The manifestations are different, but the condition is the same. And between those two extremes of generally good and cold-hearted murderer lies a spectrum of manifestations, though the condition is the same. Satan's kingdom is strong and it holds people captive. Now, what might that look like in our culture? How are people held captive? I think the base level the base level of people being held captive by the kingdom of Satan is simply blindness to the truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 read, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. At the base level, Captivity looks like blindness to the truth. Now, Satan might simply be blinding by getting people off focus, getting them onto something else, like focus on their career or on money or on drugs or on sex or on power or on popularity or on hobbies or on relationships, you name it. Distraction. He might captivate people with a flood of religions so that Christianity just seems like white noise, just one way out of thousands instead of what it is, the truth that leads to life. See, captivity doesn't have to be demonic possession. It can simply be diversion, keeping people from recognizing the truth. That's what Satan wants. Now, captivity can be demonic possession, yes, and that leads me to a question. Does Satan possess people today? I have no reason to believe otherwise. The Bible does not give us any indication that demon possession ceased after the time of Christ. Do I think there are people in our world that are demon possessed? Yes, I do. And I think most of the time we are completely unaware. Remember, demons seemed to be hidden until Jesus shows up. Then they have to reveal themselves. The man in our story today, remember, is an extreme case. By what we see from most of Scripture, it appears that most of the time, demons went undetected until Jesus showed up. And I believe that's probably what happens in our day. But understand, I'm no expert in this matter. I'm just telling you what I know the Word of God says and what I've seen personally. But this leads me to another question. If Satan can possess people today, can Satan possess Christians? What influence does Satan have over Christianity? Let me say this. 
I do not believe a demon can inhabit a believer. Colossians 1.13 reads, He, this is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The idea is our citizenship has been transferred. We no longer belong to the darkness. On top of that, every time you see demon possession in Scripture, it's always an unbeliever. It's never a believer. Furthermore, believers are never warned in Scripture of demon possession. Satan cannot possess what the Holy Spirit has sealed. You can't be possessed. I don't believe that. But I do believe in spiritual warfare. I do believe Satan tempts us. I do believe he tries to discourage us. I do believe he thwarts the church. And I do believe that we can allow ourselves to be influenced by him if we give him ground. What do I mean by that? If we believe his lies. John Bloom is an author for John Piper's ministry, Desiring God. And John Bloom writes an article that's entitled, How Satan Gets a Hold of You. I encourage you to go look up that article. It's great. But in that article, he writes this. We grant authority to whomever we trust. The devil has no authority over any Christian except the authority we grant him by believing him. He is a liar. Make no mistake. He wants to get a hold of you to destroy you, not possess you, but influence you. 1 Peter 5, 8 reads, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He doesn't want you to influence the world for the gospel. He doesn't want you to experience the freedom you have in Christ. He doesn't want you to have joy and peace and patience. He wants you captive, and he will lie to you and try to get you to believe his lies. So what do we do about the kingdom of Satan and its influence in our world? First, we need to recognize it exists. As crazy as it may sound, there are people, even Christians, who deny the existence of Satan. But listen to me, Satan and his demons are very real and very active. They fight against the truth. Anytime you come up against somebody antagonistic to Christianity, there is demon influence there. I'm not saying they're necessarily possessed. I'm saying they are certainly influenced by the power that wants to destroy God. Never forget Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Remember who the real enemy is. Recognize the kingdom of Satan is real. Secondly, don't give him ground by believing his lies. Resist. 1 Peter 5, back to 1 Peter 5, Peter tells us that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion and then he hits us with this in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. Resist the lies of the enemy. 
Stand strong in what you believe about Jesus. Let nothing influence you away from the truth of Jesus Christ. So read, meditate, saturate yourselves in God's word. In that same article that John Bloom writes, he quotes, he says this, our best protection against demons is less preoccupation with demons and more preoccupation with God. Satan's kingdom is strong and holds people captive. That's the bad news. But friends, beloved, there is good news. Here's your second point. Jesus' kingdom is stronger and sets people free. Who wants to see this man set free? Join me in verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me, for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jesus' kingdom is stronger and sets people free. Like I said earlier, this possessed man comes to Jesus. He's compelled because demons can't hide from Jesus. He falls at Jesus' feet. And just like we've seen in the past with other demon possession, he calls out against Jesus. The words, what have you to do with me, is the same way of saying, why are you bothering me? Leave me alone. And the demon addresses Jesus by title. He says, son of the most high God, which was probably a weak attempt to get control over Jesus. I've said this before that in the first century it was a common belief that knowing a spirit's name gave you the power over that spirit and that might be what's going on here. But something interesting happens. The demon says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now he says this for a couple of reasons. One, the demon understands that Jesus has the authority to pronounce judgment. There is a time, an eschatological future events, that a judgment is coming for those demons who rebelled against Jesus. It's a future event, but Jesus, being God, being who he is, has the authority to pronounce judgment right now. And the demon begs him not to, which is why he says, I adjure you by God. But there's another reason why he says this. The demon is likely using some sort of diversionary tactic Now, why would I say that? Look at verse eight. For he, this is Jesus speaking, he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus had told the demon to come out, but instead of obeying, the demon diverts with this plea to not be tormented. Now, that raises a question in my mind. How is it that a demon can disobey Jesus? You know, I hate to say, but I I don't have a fully satisfactory answer for that. 
But the best I can think is this. He's not directly disobeying Jesus, but he's delaying obedience in an effort to strike a bargain. Jesus had told the demon to come out. The demon diverts by begging not to be tormented. Then Jesus does something interesting. He asks the demon, what is your name? That wasn't a kind gesture. And it wasn't that Jesus needed the name of the demon. No, he's doing this for a purpose. He asks, what is your name? Now, if we remember the greater context of the passage, remember we're dealing with the kingdom of God and what it does. So what we're seeing here is that Jesus asks the name of the demon because Jesus is about to do something he's never done before. Yes, he's done exorcisms, but not to this level. Jesus is about to get, get victory, not just over one demon, but a horde of demons. Look what the man says. He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. The demon here, I don't believe is actually giving a name, but rather giving a title, the title Legion. Now, a legion in the Roman army was about 6,000 troops. That doesn't mean that there were necessarily 6,000 demons inside this guy. What it's trying to convey, I believe, is that there was a great number of demons. How many? We're not told. But a great number of demons had taken possession in this man. So by asking the demon, demon's name, Jesus, is, Jesus reveals the strength of the demonic horde. Not just one, but many. Jesus one man is facing a multitude of demons. And perhaps at this point, we don't know, the scripture doesn't tell us, the, the disciples think, what's he gonna do now? He's one man against a multitude. Humanly speaking, Jesus should be defeated. But the truth is, the demons are already scared. Look at verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. You don't beg somebody if you're not scared. And there's a little bit of confusion here because of the pronouns. You see there's the singular he referring to the man, but then the plural referring to the demons. What's going on there? I think the best way to understand that is that the demons are using the man's mouth to speak. So the he may be referring to the man, but it's really referring to what the demons are saying through the man. But the other confusing thing here is this. Why are the demons so concerned about being sent out of the country? We take this to mean the country of the Gerasenes, but why does it matter? Why would they care if Jesus sends them out into another country or not? It's a great question. Once again, I don't have a satisfactory answer for you. There's simply so much about the spiritual realm that we don't know. We don't know how it acts. We don't, we don't know the, the, the quote-unquote laws that govern the spiritual world like we know the laws that govern the physical world. But I did read one commentator who suggested that perhaps the demons knew because of who Jesus was, they knew they were going to have to leave this man, but they wanted to maintain some level of control in this area. Now that kind of makes sense, Considering their request, their next request is that they ask to be sent into pigs. Why? Because perhaps, perhaps, and we don't know, 
Perhaps they're thinking forced out of this man, but if we can take residence in these pigs, at least we can stay in the area. Look at verse 12. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And here's where it gets funny. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. If it was their intention to try and stay in the area, it didn't work. They rush, off, they rush into the pigs. It spooks the pigs. It creates a pig stampede. And all the pigs rush off the bank and are drowned in the sea. And so many of you are thinking now, oh, what a loss of bacon. <laughs> you know, to the Jewish reader, this would have been hilarious. It would have been. Because pigs, you probably know, are unclean animals. They were forbidden to eat pigs in the law. So these unclean spirits enter unclean animals and causes this stampede which kills all the unclean animals. The Jews would have cheered. Now what does this show us? That Jesus, once again, is victorious even against so many demons. He can do this because he's God. Now let me address something because there are some who have questioned why would Jesus allow so many animals to perish? Well, it's interesting to note. Jesus didn't kill the pigs. The demons did. And you might think, true, but Jesus knew what was going to happen, didn't he? Yes. But then think of this. What we're getting here is a lesson in perspective. The lives of 2,000 pigs were not comparable to the life of one man. To Jesus, that man, his soul was far more important than the pigs. And that's a truth that's being suppressed in our world today. More and more, people would rather stand up for the rights of animals than people. And don't get me wrong, I love animals. We've got three of them at home. Three animals, four kids, we're crazy. <laughs> but as wonderful as animals are, Jesus shows us in, their sto in this story that they are not as important as people. People are so important that they are worth liberating. Jesus' kingdom is stronger and it sets people free with a command. Jesus releases this man from the bondage of Satan. That's how powerful Jesus is. And whatever bondage we may have in our lives, let me give you the Sunday school answer to that. Jesus. I told you earlier, we give ground to Satan when we believe his lies. Not that we're possessed, but we give ground to him. We can be, in a way, held captive by his lies. And the opposite is also true. Satan loses ground when we run to Jesus and to his truth. So that would lead me to ask, what lies are you bound to? Christians can be bound to lies. We can allow ourselves to be deceived by Satan's messages and thus lead us down paths we don't want to go. Do you want an example? It's a common mantra in our culture to say, follow your heart. 
This means to communicate that if you just follow your whims, follow your desires, your life will be happy. Friends, I have to tell you, that's a lie. Following your heart, doing whatever you desire, chasing whatever dream you have, sure, it sounds good. Sure, it even feels good for a time. But it leads to disaster. Let's just say you followed every whim that came your way. What would happen to you? Heartache. Because many of our whims, many of our desires lead to sin. And every sin yields consequences. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who could understand it? Why would we want to follow that? Don't follow your heart. Instead, give it to Jesus. Let him mold and shape your heart so that it conforms to his will. And what follows is freedom. True freedom. I said earlier, Christians can't be possessed by demons, but let me ask you this. From what do you need to be set free? Asked differently, what lies are you believing? What lies about your life, your marriage, your parenting, your job, your church, or what lies about God are you believing? Take some time this week to ask the Lord to reveal the lies you are believing, then turn to the truth and be free. You know, last week I said, every time we lack trust in God, what we're really doing is failing to believe a truth about God. So let me ask it this way. What truths about God are you failing to believe? He is good. He is just. He is faithful. He is sure. He is love. Are you struggling to fully believe any of those truths? And are you running to lesser gods to try to fill you? Instead, ask God to increase your faith this week. Satan's kingdom is strong and it holds people captive. Jesus' kingdom is stronger and it sets people free. Lastly, Jesus' kingdom evokes both fear and faith. Jesus' kingdom evokes both fear and faith. Follow along as I read verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be, might be with him and he did not permit, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. 
Obviously, the event of 2,000 pigs rushing to their deaths would have stirred up the herdsmen. They rush to the nearby city, to the surrounding areas. They tell everyone. That creates a stir. And what happens is what we always see happen. Where Jesus is, here comes a crowd. But this crowd is different. They don't come to him wanting to be healed. They don't come to him bringing their sick. They come and when they arrive, they find a changed man. The man they knew to be wild and hostile and crazy is now clothed and in his right mind. And their response is not joy, but fear. Jesus' kingdom evokes fear. Fear in some people. Now remember, we're in Gentile country. They did not worship Yahweh. They were not looking for a Messiah. They had other religions. They had other superstitions. And one thing that was common back then was a belief in magicians. They could have easily thought Jesus was some kind of magician and was therefore not to be trusted. Sadly, like the Pharisees and many of the Jewish crowd, these people see but do not perceive. They hear, but they do not understand, so their response is fear and rejection. The text tells us they begged Jesus to depart, and interestingly enough, Jesus obliges. Ultimately, sadly, that's the response of many people today. But there's another response. The man who had been healed of the possession, begs to go with Jesus. And who can blame him? He responds in faith. He knows what has happened to him. Who knows how many voices in his head and suddenly it's silent. And what peace he must feel. His heart belongs to Jesus. But Jesus does something interesting here. And in our story, this is the third time somebody has begged something of him but it's the first time Jesus refused. Jesus instead tells him, go home. Which if you think about it, that would have been a gift in and of itself because who knows how long he had been ostracized from his family and friends. But Jesus doesn't just say go home. Jesus gives him a mission. He says, tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And by the way, that is another claim to the deity of Jesus Christ. He's saying, tell them all the Lord has done for you. Jesus is claiming that his work is God's work. Tell them what God has done. And the man obeys. Read the next verse with me, verse 20. And he went away and began to preach in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone Marveled. Now, the Decapolis was a group of 10 Greek cities on the eastern and southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. He doesn't just go home. He goes everywhere. And word spreads all over this area about what Jesus had done to the former demoniac. And rather than fear, this man responds to the kingdom of God in faith, and that faith had an impact. We're not told directly, but perhaps others believed the testimony and were saved. Let me ask this, what about you? Is there something about Jesus that causes fear? Maybe fear is too strong a word. 
Maybe indifference. Maybe confusion. What is your response to Jesus' kingdom? Do you even realize that if you're not a part of Jesus' kingdom, you're a part of Satan's kingdom? Do you even realize that Satan has a hold on you? Maybe you're not even aware of that, but let me assure you, if you're not in the kingdom of God, you are automatically in the kingdom of Satan. It's not like you have a choice. You can't decide which kingdom to join. It's not like coming to a fork in the road and being able to choose which path. There's no middle ground. Please don't think I could choose Satan or I could choose Jesus. It's not like that. The horrible truth is this, that all of us are born into Satan's kingdom. It's automatic. Just as it's automatic that you are a citizen of whatever country you are born in, it's automatic that you are a citizen of whatever spiritual kingdom you are born in. It doesn't matter what you choose. You can't choose. You are in the realm of Satan automatically. And we were all in that predicament at one time. But just like Jesus stepped onto the shore and invaded Satan's domain, he can step into your life if you receive his offer of salvation by faith. He can break the hold Satan has on you just like he broke the hold on this man. Won't you receive him today? If you have any more questions, please catch me after the service. What of us who are already a part of the kingdom of God, what lesson can we learn from this former demoniac? Well, you know, Acts 1.6, the author Luke describes the ascension of Jesus, but before Jesus ascends, the disciples ask him, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? Jesus effectively says, that's not for you to know. But then he hits him with this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of all the earth. We too have a mission from the Lord to speak of how much the Lord has done for us. And did you know that's a great way to evangelize? There's many methods to evangelism. A Google search will show you that. And these different methods can be helpful. I'm not saying they're not. But you know what? Personal testimony can have a huge impact. Yes, we need to know our Bibles. Yes, we need to know how to clearly articulate the gospel. But don't discount the power of sharing your personal testimony, of telling people all that the Lord has done for you. It doesn't have to be complicated. Verses 19 and 20 give us a guide. Tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. What has the Lord done for you? You know, after hearing a testimony like this demoniac, you might be tempted to think, my testimony is nothing compared to this man's. But don't make that mistake. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for you, fellow Christian. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what he's done for you. And that's something you could have never done on your own. 
By taking your penalty of sin upon himself, your Savior paid the debt so you could be a citizen of heaven. It doesn't matter if you have this incredible testimony of being saved out of debauchery, drugs, or demon possession, or if you have the simple testimony of recognizing your need for Christ and coming to him. The result is the same, transference. You were in darkness, and now you are in light, and you only got there through Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord has done for you. That's what the Lord has done for us. And that's what we need to share. Sure, the details are different with every person. But the end result is the same. So this week, let me challenge you. Who could you tell what the Lord has done for you? Do that this week and don't fear. The battle lines are drawn between two kingdoms, but the outcome has already been determined. England and France may have come to the end of the Hundred Years' War with no profit, but know this. Only one spiritual kingdom will stand at the end of this cosmic conflict. Jesus will stand. Satan will fall. We might be tempted to fear when faced against the kingdom of Satan. He is powerful. He is scary. And his kingdom is vast. You can find it anywhere on the face of the planet. But don't forget this. The same power that dismissed the demons is not just a power. He's a person. And that person has promised to be with you even to the end of the age. Let that truth embolden you to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. O oh God, great king of the kingdom that will never end, thank you for your work of transference. Thank you that you saved this man in our text. And thank you for saving those in this room who by faith have embraced you as Lord and Savior. Jesus, do your work in our hearts. Reveal the lies that we still believe. Reveal to us those ways we still let the kingdom of Satan have a rule in our hearts. Change us, Lord. Teach us your truth and free those parts of us that still cling to the reign of darkness. Lord, if anyone in this room doesn't understand the things of God, make it clear to them. Help them to be bold to proclaim your gospel this week. And Lord, help all of us to be bold to proclaim your gospel this week. We pray in the name of Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, amen.